Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength. And our Redeemer, I pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. All week, I kept looking for something. And it dawned on me early this morning what I was looking for. I was looking for a choir of angels. They were present at the birth of Jesus, but we don't hear about them being present at his resurrection. I guess I'm looking for a a massive pipe organ, or, or I'm looking for, I don't know, a choir of a thousand, maybe a flyover, I, I don't know. <laughs> it, it's like it happens quietly. I, I was thinking about an empty tomb, and what can you say about an empty tomb except, of course, that it's empty. Of course, it has great significance, but what can you say? It's, it's empty, right? And I just wanted to kind of go back and look at last week's message first and then go on with it. Because you see, today's gospel message, our gospel reading, is really a continuation of last week. So last week, we read of Mary Magdalene who goes to the tomb while it's still dark and the stone has been rolled back. And she looks in and uh, she runs to Peter and John and they go back and they run to the tomb. And John's younger, he, he gets there first, I guess. And he looks in, Peter walks in, they both go in, they see that Jesus' body is not there. They see the cloths. They see the cloth over the face that was folded up. But otherwise, the tomb is empty. And then, it says that John believed. I guess he believed that Jesus was not there. I'm not sure what he believed. But he believed. And then they went home. They didn't shout for joy. They didn't sing. There were no exclamations. They just went home. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. She thought someone had taken Jesus' body. And so she... Looks, looks inside the tomb, and there are two angels there. There's one where Jesus' head was, and there's one where Jesus' feet were. And I say, why are you weeping? And she said, they've taken my Lord's body. And no sooner had she said that than she turns around and she sees this figure. She presumes it to be the gardener. Well, it's not the gardener, it's Jesus. And he says, why are you weeping? 
And she says, well, they've taken away my Lord. And Jesus says to her, Mary. And then she realizes it's Jesus. And she says, Rabboni, teacher. She must embrace him. And he says, I haven't yet risen to be with my father. Don't cling to me. I'm ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. And so she is told to tell the disciples, and she does. And so she finds the disciples together and she says, I've seen the Lord. He's alive. This is the news that changed the world forever. And they didn't believe her. And that was Easter Sunday morning. Well, we pick up the story on the evening of Easter. And you can follow with me in your service booklet, John 20, 19 through 31. The disciples are locked in a room. They're locked in a room because they're frightened. They're frightened that the Jews will come, arrest them, perhaps torture them, perhaps kill them. They're sad. They have witnessed much of Good Friday. They know. They don't believe Mary Magdalene's report. (laughs) And then Jesus walks through the wall. Just walks right through the wall. Now, that would certainly get a person's attention. Now, of course, he walked through the wall and his resurrection body. That's the only way he could walk through the wall. He reveals his risen body. He reveals his resurrection body. And their fear increases. They're not having a party. They're more frightened. And he says, he reads their minds, he says, peace be with you. Reine, which is Greek, or Shalom Aleichem, which is Hebrew, or Pax Fobiscum. Peace be with you. It's an everyday greeting. He says, peace be with you. And when we say it, it's, it's a nice greeting. When the Master says it, it has great power. And it, in fact, does bring just what it says, peace. Peace be with you. If just some of them had recalled Jesus' saying, and it's written earlier in the Gospel of John, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I don't know if they recall that. So he shows them his hands. And he shows them his side. It is Jesus. They have to believe. They have no choice. Jesus is who he says he is. This is his crucified body. Then they are comforted and they're glad to see the Lord. 
And then he says again, peace be with you. And then he sends them. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. He breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Recall that when we read in Genesis, um, we find that, that God breathed on Adam the breath of life. And Adam became a living creature. And so are those who receive Jesus. They receive the breath of life as well. They're born again of the Spirit. But this is not Pentecost. When Jesus breathes on them here, there is some impartation of the Holy Spirit, but not in the fullness that they will know in 50 days. He tells them, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold the sins from any, it is withheld. It really seems like too much. I mean, only God can forgive sins. How can he possibly give them that authority? But you see, the preaching of the gospel proclaims forgiveness. It doesn't grant it. It proclaims it. The apostles must preach the good news of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. He is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The Holy Spirit must convict the unbeliever of sin, and true forgiveness is granted to the truly repentant believer. To those who believe and repent, the preacher may promise forgiveness and know that God will agree. And for the unbelievers, there is no such promise. And God will also agree with that too. Those who do not respond to the preaching of the gospel are left in their sins, that is, their sins are withheld. And now we come to the story of Jesus and Thomas. Thomas is not present on Easter morning. He's not present on Easter evening. Here's from the other disciples an amazing report, however, during the week. And he proclaims he'll never believe. He'll never believe unless he sees the mark of the nails, touches the mark of the nails, and puts his hand into Jesus' side. So let's look at the attitude that Thomas displayed. I think sometimes we distrust others and demand that much evidence be presented before we can believe anything. We want to go see for ourselves. Our pride can demand proof that is simply not available. Sometimes we forget that the business of daily life could never go on if we are always doubting everything that we see. But Thomas is much more complex than the title Doubting Thomas. After all, it does appear that not any of the disciples ever understood that Jesus was really going to be crucified, buried, and rise again. Maybe he was the Messiah, but they did not realize he would be a crucified Messiah. Recall that when Jesus declared his intention to return to Judea, and the other disciples try to dissuade him because they know it will mean his death, it is Thomas, Thomas, who encourages him to go. And he says, we should go so that we may die with him. Well, Thomas's theology is wrong, but his commitment to the Lord is solid. 
Jesus, of course, made the once perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world. Dying with Jesus was not part of the plan. (laughs) Paradoxically or prophetically, all but one disciple was eventually martyred. They did die, not with Jesus, not at the same time. You notice that what Thomas asked for is exactly what all the other disciples got. When Jesus appeared to the other disciples, he showed them his hands and his side. And only then, John records, did the disciples rejoice because they saw the Lord. So let's go on with the story. Jesus appears one week later, exactly as he did before. Peace be with you. He reads the mind of Thomas and tells him, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. His emphatic disbelief of the testimony of other disciples intensifies his subsequent perception of the true nature of Jesus. He wants physical evidence which would convince him that the risen Christ was the very Christ he had known. Thomas answers, My Lord and my God. Thomas proclaims the divine nature of our risen Lord as he beholds his resurrection body. This is the highest praise of Jesus in the entire New Testament. My Lord and my God. Jesus goes on to say, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. If I may paraphrase Jesus just a little bit. Of course you believe, Thomas. You have witnessed enough to convince any reasonable person that I am the Son of God risen from the dead and the necessary object of faith. But many will be called upon to believe without such overwhelming personal experiences. True faith is beyond personal experience. It is the evaluation and acceptance of the testimony about Jesus. We have no right to expect our own visitation by the risen Lord to draw us to faith. Jesus has given to the church the task of bringing people to faith through the faithfully preached message of salvation, which is added to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Believers today receive a special blessing from Jesus. He blesses those who come to faith in him, not by sight, but by what is heard and to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. John's whole point in writing his gospel, as he tells us in verses 30 through 31, is to provide a record, a record of the signs Jesus performed, including the supreme sign of his death and resurrection, so that we may know him as the Son of God, and that we may have life in his name. This life in him is a free gift. It is received by faith. He has brought life, but this life is not a gift separate from himself. Rather, it is life in himself. To live in his name is to live his own life with its source in the Father, and therefore to live his pattern of life. This means to love as he loved, to be obedient to God as he was, to totally trust in him, and to interpret all the events in our lives 
in the light of His divine presence. Maybe to some of you this means to begin to believe, and to others to continue to believe. He wants us to find faith, and to continue to grow in that faith. And I'll close with a portion of our second reading from 1 Peter. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. And you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Faith, in the words of the Nicene Creed, I believe in one God,